Parallax, we are proud to be part of a public affairs lineup on KDVS that covers a lot of different topics. And we've made a practice over the years to try and bring all the different hosts on and talk to them about what they do and what they, they do so well. Community radio is trying to reach niches that commercial radio is not, and I'd, I'd like to think that we succeed in doing that. And certainly, um, there is one show that succeeds, I think, to an unusual degree in that particular category of doing things you're not going to hear so much on commercial radio. And that would be Monday morning's program, Intercourse on Intercourse. It's been uh, it's been a feature here on KDVS off and on for the past few years, and we're pleased to be able to bring the host of Intercourse on Intercourse on Radio Parallax, which would be Letch, also known as Jesse Schmidt. Welcome, Radio Parallax, Jesse. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be on. First of all, I just want to congratulate you for taking on the topic of sexual matters, which which is uh, which is not an easy thing in American society. <laughs> I don't know. I, I find it's kind of amazing to actually talk to people about sex and sexuality. Just frankly, it's amazing how as soon as you just come to it with a calm and frank manner, people start to open up and treat it in the same way that you treat it also, just on the street, people who aren't even used to talking about it. Well, certainly we've supposedly had a sexual revolution in this country over the past, I guess, uh, 40 years, which, which well, frankly, I can't resist the Groucho Marx line on that, which was that when he heard there was a sexual revolution going on, he tried to enlist, but all he got was a series of humiliating rejections. <laughs> <laughs> but we have been trying to be more sexual in this country, but I, I guess I'd say, I, would you agree, it was kind of with mi- mixed results? Definitely. I think we kind of approached it with this sort of sweet naive enthusiasm of thinking if we just have free love, it'll be great mm-hmm. without thinking about all of the existing inequalities and how to deal with those. And so we ended up with a situation in which um, people are often pressured to be sexual where they don't necessarily want to. And people still don't know how to, even though there's this whole idea of like free love and people should be able to get it on or not whenever they want to, there's not a lot of talk about how to talk about it or how to get what you want or right. how to like engage with people in, in a way in which everyone is happy and joyful <laughs> about what's happening. And I have to admit, Jesse, I'm quite ignorant about this. There's been some changes in the nomenclature of late as to how <laughs> things are described. And I think that that's, that's a, a, a subject near and dear to your heart. It is. Yeah, I'm really trying to to um, ask every guest that I have on to share their preferred pronoun. So my preferred pronoun is she or her, and I also identify as woman instead of girl. <laughs> Basically, your preferred pronoun is what you would like to, if I'm talking about you in the third person, would you like me to say he or her or Z or per or that guy? And the idea is that you can't assume upon meeting someone what they would like to be referred to as or how they identify, and so it's polite just to ask. Fair enough. Ms. McMillan, please make a note of that for future guests. <laughs> well, I was listening to your show last week, and you, you had a guest on uh, named Jamie Waxman who was addressing the issue of masturbation, which, again, a topic that you're not going to hear a lot of on commercial radio, but I think she was making the point that, well, this is, a, this is something people do for the most part, and if you learned how to do it well— it actually has tremendous benefits of then showing someone else how they can please please the individual. For sure. And then again, the, the other issue with that is we have this 
a lot of people talk about the benefits of learning how to masturbate and then you know what you like and can tell other people about it. But there's this, this huge divide between knowing what you like and being able to communicate what you like to another person, two completely different things. So it's a good start to think about developing these skills, but then to also think about how to have a conversation with someone else about describing them and asking for them. And it, well, I should clarify, I think we sort of think that everybody masturbates, everybody's sexual, but I want to I ask you, as someone who's been talking about this in your show for a while, there's been a, a recent understanding that a lot of people actually aren't, aren't really not very sexual. There's a subset of our population whose pretty much attitude about it is, eh, don't, don't really need it, which, which I think sort of surprises people. Indeed. There is an asexual community who definitely um, are people who are coming out and saying, no, we don't want it. Most people, we talk about sexual metaphors constantly and mm -hmm. are making references to having crushes on people. And a lot of asexual people say they don't get it, like it doesn't make sense to them. So actually had David J on to talk about this. He's the founder of Avon. And what's that stand for? Uh, it's Asexual Visibility and Education Network. Okay. Um, and he and some other folks from Avon led a uh, campaign to basically get asexuality removed from the DSM, which is the physician's... Diagnostic the, Statistical... Yes. Man, yes. Yes. Thank where, you. Where doctors extract their diagnoses of a psychiatric nature from. Yes. And he was exactly. trying to get it removed. Yes. And they were successful, actually... In getting it redefined, because it had previously been that um, someone has a disorder, which I sadly really forget what it's called, but they said that if your partner goes in and tell and says that you don't have enough sexual um, feeling or whatever, then you would be diagnosed as um, having this disorder, and then the physician, the psychiatrist, would try to treat you. But it's not your problem. You don't think you have a problem. Your partner does. To me, sense. is alarming and horrifying. Yeah, but one person defining that there should be more without the consent of the other person is problematic. And so the psychiatrist coming in and intervening on behalf of one member of the couple because the other person doesn't want to have sex enough is problematic. Well, yes, I'd have to agree. <laughs> Did they find there are any effective treatments for, for such individuals? I, you know, I'm not actually sure. Okay, um, I, this is this is an area that I just is it's just becoming a new, an, almost a new field that it's being recognized of late. Yeah, it's the the newest letter in the uh, LGBT alphabet soup. <laughs> oh, of so it's now uh, LGBTQQIA, I think. And what is QQIA? Q is queer, questioning, intersex, and asexual. Oh. Holy so mackerel. Yeah. Because you sent me, and asking about what you do in your show, you sent me a, a, an email back, and it had that term on there, LGBTQQI, and I'm like, okay. <laughs> I knew that was going to come up. <laughs> now we know. Yeah, so, it's amazing the variability of people in this world and how many possibilities we bring to the board. Yes, indeed. You had something else in this email that, that kind of struck me I did have to ask you about, or orgasmic birth. What, what is that? Uh, turns out that... The way that we give birth in hospitals is problematic, as people may know. On our yeah, backs. I've been there. Yeah. <laughs> Playing catch, yeah. Yeah, it's a really uh, painful medicalized process in which the pregnant person is basically diagnosed mm -hmm. as sick and they have to go into the hospital and lay on their back and doctors totally manage the situation. But 
actually women have been giving birth since before we were humans, whatever. People have been giving birth forever and we know how to do it. And so like having faith in our own ability to feel what's good for us and to have control over our own birthing process, which is not an illness and being able to do it in our own home. It turns out we can create atmospheres and people have to really practice for this, right? They have to kind of build up and do um, like super Lamaze class, basically. But people do get to the point where they actually give birth and have orgasm while doing it. Wow. Well, I, as far as I know, it never took place in, in my delivery room, but <laughs> but I, I, I like the concept. <laughs> that has great promise. It's amazing. And I mean, it's it's definitely completely different than the the idea that we have of giving birth is in this sterile white room in which there are medical personnel present and mm-hmm. not very many mm-hmm. like members of the person giving birth's family but in this situation basically the person giving birth defines like they have whomever they wish to have in the room they have it in their own home they maybe have candles and music and nice things smelling and they basically dictate I want to be walking around now I want to be in a pool now I want to be giving a a massage or getting a massage and there's a lot of care and softness that's involved and the in the movie this the woman that I interviewed Deborah Pascali Bonaro was the director of of a film Orgasmic Birth and Mm -hmm. in the film it's just this kind of beautiful very sensual atmosphere in which these women are just being loved on or people, I guess most of them identify as women are being loved on basically until they give birth. And then the birth is this, all of them talk about it in this really glowing way of this transcendent experience that they had, which I guess most people talk about birth that way. But well, I, I, uh, from my standpoint, I can certainly relate to people talking about how, you know, the baby's presented to them and it's this, this shining moment in, in everyone's life. But the idea that like, well, even before the baby comes out or as it's coming out, it's it's still a pretty fun experience. That's there's much to recommend that. <laughs> like the concept. I'll grant that. I'll grant that. You also mentioned in, in in the email that you've covered quite a bit on the issue of of reproductive justice and just what's happening. And I think this is an area where uh, I think we can certainly agree on our show and your show, or just ask the question. What the hell's going on in this country? Which, like, we seem to have gone back, you know, generations at this point about what we're debating about in, in, in terms of where we stand in, in reproductive issues. Uh, this is sort of complicated for me, and I've been doing a great, great deal of thinking about it because it's not the way that I've seen it developing. It's not just about reproduction and contraceptives and women it's also tied in with immigration and racism and all of these things are coming together in this one issue that just happens to be sort of kind of blowing up around the republican primaries so that everyone's kind of using this idea of contraception as like their rallying point I can't say this with any authority, but I read an article a while ago in Color Lines that talked about how the idea of backlash and the fact that we have elected a black president and um, and also in addition to that, they didn't talk about this in the article, but we have been addressing issues of equality for LGBTQIA people. To me, what's happening is people who are used to conservative lifestyles are freaking out about all of these changes that they're seeing happening. 
um, and feeling threatened in their own lifestyles and their own values. And the way that they're reacting is with this crazy backlash that goes all the way back to contraceptives. We have one candidate, Rick Santorum, uh, an arch-Catholic, backing the Catholic Church view that, well, you know, all, all contraception's bad. It's yes. like, and this is a man running for president yes. in the United States of America. It's like, wow. In, yeah. in the 21st century, it just, it's, it's a bit, it, it's a bit mind-boggling. Well, and the fact that you can have the Catholic Church saying that their religious beliefs should be considered before the rights of any given individual who works for them, to me, is just totally amazing. Well, they managed to frame that in a very curious way, like it's a religious issue, when actually it's, it's a church, is the, as a, as sort of a, it's under the umbrella of the Catholic Church, but it's like any other organization, a hospital, a school, or whatever, with regular employees, and they're, they're going to set down Catholic doctrine for all their employees who might be Buddhist or Jewish or Protestant or anything else, and it's like, good Lord. I mean, I, I have to hand it to him for framing it that way, but that's, that's really a crazy way to frame it. I completely agree. Well, yeah, I mean, we quoted on last week's program a little piece in the News and Review saying, well, what if Jehovah's Witnesses owned a, a school and they wouldn't allow anyone to get health insurance that would allow a blood transfusion because their principles say that you don't get one? I mean, it's, it's just, it would be equally nutty. Um, actually, <laughs> I just interviewed someone from the National Latina Institute for Reproductive Health, I think two weeks ago, or it was a while ago. Um, but they, she was telling me, the person I interviewed, that... They actually have in legislation something that the Latina Institute that I just talked about mm -hmm. are fighting it. And it's legislation that basically says that religious institutions can um, refuse treatment of anything based on their religious belief. So this could actually be a thing. So, so the issue has become not just about contraceptive, but it's become about basically health coverage for anyone who is working for a religious institution or an employer who has religious beliefs that disagree with any kind of treatment that could be provided within the health insurance. <laughs> and they don't necessarily have to tell you. So you basically have to completely go over your health coverage with a fine tooth comb to make sure that you're getting everything covered that you... Sounds like we better be watching legislature to see how far this one gets along the way, because this sounds like major trouble. Yes. And a really great illustration of why we have the separation of church and state. It is not to protect we, the religious <laughs> institutions. It's to protect the people from being having the religious institutions impose their beliefs and laws upon us. Hallelujah. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. It you know it's 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 this um, you know, in this country we've we've by and large escaped the bloodbath they had in in Europe and in Asia and some of their locations over one religious faction uh, trying to tell another one what to do and and, st and struggle for power and it's sort of amazing to me that at this latest stage in, in this country we're sort of backing into that. Yeah, it's completely amazing to me that and I. I hear people so often say religion is stupid or people who believe in religion is stupid. I absolutely don't agree with that. I think that religion can be an amazing power for whatever, for good or, you know, it can be politically, organizationally completely awesome. And it makes people feel really good and connected to the world in really important ways. But they choose to worship that way and they can follow the belief systems that they wish to follow. And none of us should be forced to follow the belief systems of anyone else. Right. That's why we have religious freedom.
Well spoken. <laughs> I absolutely agree. And before we leave that topic, I would point out that I was brought up uh, as a Catholic, up to the point where I think reason kicked in. But uh, <laughs> but in the old days, Catholic families were notorious for having six, seven, eight children, and and they're not anymore. And and the idea that 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 Catholics, good Catholics, are following dictates of the Church is obviously not true. Catholic women are obviously exercising birth control options and not having as large a family, and yet somehow that that's been lost in the in the discussion as well. Yes, I actually um, will be airing an interview with someone from Sister Song, which is the organization that came up with the idea of reproductive justice, which actually, going back a moment, the idea of reproductive justice is that choice isn't just an individual option protecting individual rights in a vacuum, um, which is the way that we have traditionally talked about the the right to terminate a pregnancy has been the focus of um, pro-life movement. But it's not just about that, like, you know, individual upper middle class white ladies making the decision that they just don't want to have one right now. It's like this really complicated issue in which people aren't getting prenatal care for the babies that they want. They're For the pregnancies that want to be carried out, people can't get care or people can't get care for the kids they already have. And so Sister Song created a movement in which they brought together all of these women of color to say, this is an issue for our community. This is an issue of access. This is not an issue of us making individual choices in a vacuum without any other context. It's an issue of people not being provided for, period. And that's why we're making the best decisions we can for our families that already exist. So I saw an interview with Loretta something, whose last name I'm forgetting right now. She is the most amazing spokeswoman for Sister Song. I went on their website and watched this interview with her, and there was a Catholic representative also of, I think, Catholics for Choice was the group name. And the statistics are that 80% of Catholics advocate for access to contraceptions. And in fact, there was a papal people who uh, came together and had a discussion about whether contraception should be acceptable um, within the Catholic Church when contraception became legal in the United States. Which, which to me, I, I, I just, when you, you say that, I just stop and I pause and thinking like, uh, imagine taking the concept that contraception of all sorts is, is wrong. It's morally wrong. And you yes. just, you just like, wow, this is, this is a, this is a philosophy from the 12th century. Well, they talked about it for, I believe, at least two years or more before actually the, the group that came together to have the discussion was made up of um, liturgy and many mm-hmm. people from the Catholic Church, as well as, I believe, some doctors, no women, I think, or maybe one or two women, of course, naturally. Um, and they came back to the Pope and said, we should actually say contraception is okay. And the Pope at the time, who I forget who it was, unfortunately, I should have notes, um, said, no, we're not going to do that. So these people discussed this issue for over a year mm-hmm. and came back to the Pope, who then said, mm, well, actually, we should keep When I was in medical school, we had to deal with the issue of the Catholic Church saying that it was against condoms, and very reluctantly, they finally had to say, well, we're against condoms and we're against gay sex, but okay, if you're using the condoms to prevent sexually transmitted disease, and only that, <laughs> well, then I guess it's okay. It was just like, Wow. Yeah, it's... It's breathtaking. Yes. 
I don't know whether you're aware of this, but I, I, in residency many years back, we were talking, I did a talk on, uh, on, on the abortion controversy, did a little research, and I was quite startled to, to realize that uh, according to the Christian churches who look at, you know, read the Bible and, and take their direction from what's there, there is nothing in the Bible against abortion. And if you ask the anti-abortion forces, cite me the chapter and verse where it says abortion's wrong, and you can quote Moses, you can quote Jesus, you can quote, you know, the, the evangelists, you know, quote anybody you want. Where does it say that? And they're stuck for an answer. Really? And yes. The, the, the closest they can come up is one of the Psalms mentions, ye who knit me in the womb, or words to that effect. And they say, well, see, God knit you in the womb, and so then you're God's child, and so then you can't terminate the pregnancy. It was not interpreted that way up until 1870, when in the wake of having its political power curtailed, the papacy came forward and said, well, we're going to now institute more control over the, the religious world that we have control over, and, and by the way, no abortions. It, it, was as, it was as recent as 1870 that they, they looked at the Bible, and something they'd missed for 19 centuries all of a sudden was crystal clear to somebody Surprise! in the Catholic Church. That's my understanding of it. Wow. As someone who also was raised in the church, my, my background is Protestant uh, mm-hmm. evangelical. I definitely heard a lot about that, and I don't remember any of the verses, but to me, the, there's a f- another flabbergasting phenomenon, which is that if God knit some, us, all of us, in the womb, then the disconnect between that and saying, okay, no abortions, but it's okay to go to war and kill civilians, <laughs> or yeah. it's okay to like have a death penalty. penalty. To me, it's like, if life is precious, life is precious, period. And that's okay. You can say life is precious and not terminate your pregnancy, but don't bring me into your, your religious beliefs. We could probably bring Chris Dean on for the American Atheist Program on Thursday morning at KDBS <laughs> and have a very interesting discussion on, you know, what the Bible is dictating us to do and what, uh, what reality is. You know, or the, the fact that, yes, as you point out, uh, war, war seems to be okay, <laughs> but, but someone's decided that abortion is all wrong, even though he can't show you where in the Bible it says that. Right. I mean, I would actually say that I'm also pro-life. I'm definitely pro-life. I'm anti-death penalty. I'm anti-war. And I'm pro-choice. So I'm pro-advocating for people who are with us in the world today and getting them resources, like getting foster kids health care and getting people education and resources and getting women care when they are seeking prenatal care and or seeking to terminate their pregnancy because that's the decision they need to make for themselves or their family. I'm totally (laughs) pro-life. Well, as we're wrapping up here, I just want to say we need to have you on again in the future, talk about sexual things. Uh, I know that we we, we both actually interviewed, uh, I guess, Mary Roach, the author of Bonk. Yes, that's so awesome. And she is probably the most fun interview I've ever done. I, I love talking to people about like serious matters and social context and stuff. But um, Mary Roach is just a super like joyful, fun, curious accessible <laughs> and who participates herself in all these things which are like including the sexual research God, yeah you know, that was like it's pretty gutsy yeah she was pretty amazing um and i just really love her kind of like really open discussion of like pig sex for example that she included <laughs> in all of her we should go how pigs are having sex with pigs just to <laughs> clarify but uh, there was much to be learned from the research as a research animal <laughs> Yeah, apparently um, pigs get more pregnant when they have upsuck or are more likely to get pregnant with upsuck. 
Meaning which the, is meaning probably that, my favorite term ever. <laughs> please explain to the listening audience what that is. <laughs> um, it basically means if the female pig has an orgasm when she is being impregnated, then she is way more likely to get pregnant. Um, so farmers will stimulate their female pigs while they're inseminating them to have the fantastic phenomenon of upsuck occur. And she talks about how they kind of very seriously assure her that, you know, it's all for the all for the piglets. Boy, and how many times have you walked past the animal science building on campus and just had no idea? <laughs> Well, anyway, uh, we have been speaking with the host of Intercourse on Intercourse, Letch, also known as Jesse Schmidt. It's been a pleasure, Jesse. Uh, For me uh, as well. Uh, before you go, I should mention that in, in real life, uh, I do run as a physician an erectile dysfunction clinic. We need to have you come back and talk about more of this in the future. But if you want, me to, if you want to cross-pollinate and talk to me about any of those issues, I'd be happy to do it. That sounds amazing. You should come on next week. Intercourse on Intercourse. How's my schedule looking, Mr. McMillan? Well, okay, we may be able to make that happen. Awesome. And I'm too sexy for my hat. Too sexy for my hat. What do you think about that? I'm a model. You know what I mean. And I do my little turn on the catwalk. Yeah, on the catwalk. On the catwalk. Yeah, I shake my little touch on the catwalk.